start with a question this morning. What would you say is the best way to choose a spouse? Because you know, beliefs have changed about that over the ages. Like prior to the mid-18th century, people chose their spouses in, in, in very, very pragmatic ways. Her family had a lot of cattle. Your family had a lot of land. Let's get married. Feelings didn't have much to do with it. What's love got to do with it, they would have said, about choosing a spouse. It was very objective, very reasoned, very pragmatic. Today, though, I think that would be considered to be very unromantic. Most people believe that the way to choose a spouse is to let your feelings and your instincts be your guide. It's much more uh, subjective. The right person is out there for you. You will know him. You will know her when you meet them by how you feel when you're with them. Just listen to pop music, Netflix. That's exactly how it's described. That belief is reinforced over and over and over. I think if someone were to come along to most of you today and suggest that you let your parents arrange your marriage, I think you'd think that they were nuts. I know this because I've offered on numerous occasions to choose my kids' spouses for them, and they have rejected my idea outright, telling me that that's ludicrous. Dad, we wouldn't let you do that. Why the change? Why the change in beliefs about how best to choose a spouse? Well, it actually boils down to the influence of some mid-18th century poets and philosophers, some artists. In their day, most people paid very little to no attention whatsoever to feelings as a decision-making guide. No, you, you made your decisions on the basis of logical reason, and rationality, and pragmatism. But creative people back then started arguing, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your emotions, your intuition, your experience, it's a better way to determine what is right and wrong, including things like who you should marry. And this became a philosophy. And the philosophy is called romanticism. And it permeates Western culture today. Now the question is, who's right? People prior to the mid-18th century? Or people since the mid-18th century? About how best to choose a spouse? Who's right? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I have no intention of answering that question this morning. I only brought that up as a way of illustrating what's at the bottom of the ideological divide in our culture today. And it's simply this. What's the basis for determining your beliefs about life, your morals, your values? How do you choose those? What's the basis for how you choose those? On one side are the modernists who would say that the, there are objective, universal truths that should guide our decisions, and we can know those truths through science and reason. On the other side are the postmodernists who would say, no, 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 there are no objective, universal truths. You can't trust reason. You can't trust rationality. You can only trust your experience and your feelings to determine what's true for you. And so both, side are, both sides argue that it's one or the other. It's always interesting to me when people attack Christianity saying it's overly simplistic, that it's too black and white, because Christianity is always more nuanced than the polarized positions that our culture takes on issues. And this, this modernist, postmodernist issue, is a perfect example of that. Christianity refuses to fall on one side or the other of the debate. Christianity would say that you can't separate the objective and the subjective. You need both the objective and the subjective, reason and experience, 
are joined in Christianity. And perhaps the place that you can see that most clearly in the Bible is in the very chapter that we started to look at last week. Find Galatians, the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 11. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11 in your Bible this morning. If you don't have either a, a hard copy or a digital copy to the Bible, we, we have some Bibles provided for you there in the, in the pew, pew racks in front of you, and you're, you're, you're more than welcome to borrow one of those this morning. Now, let me just give you a quick review from last week. Uh, you'll remember, if you were here with us last week, that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this letter to combat some people who had infiltrated some of the churches that he had planted, and these people were tampering with the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, Paul taught that it's through faith in Christ, faith in Christ alone, not human spiritual or moral performance, not your goodness, not your conformity to the laws of whatever religion that you believe in. It's not that. It's faith and faith in Christ alone that we are accepted by God. But these Jewish infiltrators were teaching what every religion in the world, in the history of the world, has taught, that faith in Christ is not enough, that moral compliance is necessary to be accepted by God. You have to be good if you want God to accept you. You have to obey. You have to follow the code, the rules. And the, the Galatians were beginning to show signs that they were buying what Paul called the, a perversion, this perversion of the gospel. So the question is, how does Paul, how does Paul defend his gospel? How does he do that? Does he use the modernist approach of demonstrating the objectivity of his message? Or does he use the postmodernist approach of his religious experience? Which one does he use? Well, actually, he uses both. Like on the one hand, we saw last week that Paul began this letter with a very objective defense of his gospel. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that this morning, uh, so I would point you to the City Church app if you weren't here to hear that last week. But in summary, he said this. He said, he said look, I didn't make the gospel up. The resurrected Christ revealed the gospel to me, and you can see objectively that it's not a gospel that I or any human being would come up with because it is completely different from every other religion in the world. It is a gospel of God's grace rather than human performance. Now you see, all of that, that's very, very objective. He even says in last week's passage, don't trust me, don't trust an angel, don't trust anyone else. If they come down and tell you that they've had some big spiritual experience and they start teaching a gospel different than the one I preached to you, you can't trust experience alone, he says. But he also doesn't just leave it at the level of the objective. Paul moves now from the objective into the very personal realm of his experience. Watch, let's read from verse 11. This is a little lengthy, but we'll read through the passage all at once this morning. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any man, 
Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then he says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Now, it sounds like a travel itinerary, doesn't it? Even though you might not understand yet all that he says in these verses, right away you can see that this section is very personal. And what Paul is doing here is he's narrating in a very succinct way what many people would call his testimony. In other words, he's describing his life pre-conversion, at the moment of conversion, and then after conversion. And you see, the reason that Paul doesn't just use an objective defense for his gospel is that if the gospel is true, if it really is supernatural, as he claims it is, it should bring explosive, radical change into a person's, into a person's life. You see, the gospel is not just an objective, intellectual assent to a set of doctrinal propositions. It's a power. It's a supernatural power that brings radical change. And so Paul says, if you want to see the truth of the gospel, look at my life. There's no way to explain what happened to me other than the gracious work of God on my life, his power through the gospel. And look, if you say this morning that you believe in Christ, but you've never experienced significant life change, if you say you believe in Christ, but the way you treat people hasn't changed, that your, that your worldview hasn't changed, that your, your sexual ethic, for instance, hasn't changed, or that the way that you use power or money hasn't changed, like if, if you haven't changed dramatically, then you haven't experienced the gospel because the gospel is a power. And that's why we summarized last week the gospel that Paul taught with this phrase. Remember this? Some of you were with us last week, and if you weren't with us last week, you've probably heard me use this before. Paul taught this. He taught believe, believe in Christ, what he did on the cross, and you will be saved. Then he says, therefore, obey. Believe in Christ, and you're saved. Therefore, he says, obey. What Paul taught was that the inevitable result, you'll notice, the inevitable result of believing the gospel will be radical, experiential transformation of your life in the form of a new desire to obey the commands of God in the Bible. See, believe equals salvation, and then it'll explode. And your desires Your desires will change. Not that you'll be perfect. Not that you won't still struggle with sin. But you'll desire in a new way to obey God. And when you see yourself not obeying, you'll you'll experience a, a kind of repentance. He says it'll explode in your life. But notice the infiltrators, on the other hand, here's what they taught. They taught something very different. They taught believe. Yeah, believe in Christ, that's fine. But you but you have to obey. You have to obey. And then you're saved. And if you notice, there's no experiential transformation in that. Like, there's no power in that. Nothing happens as a result of of believing. Obedience isn't the inevitable result of belief. It's what you do to be accepted, which makes belief in Christ nothing more than objective intellectual agreement with the fact that Christ lived and died 
and was raised again. Christianity, you see, real Christianity is both objective and it is subjective because it is a power, not just an intellectual belief. Now, here's what I want to do in the next few moments. I want to walk you through how the gospel changed Paul so radically. But to understand that, you've got to understand exactly how the infiltrators were attacking Paul's credibility. See, they were attacking his gospel by attacking him personally and his credibility. And we can sort of piece together their attack from the things that he says here and in other places in the book of Galatians. Now, again, these were Jewish infiltrators who were upset that Paul wasn't emphasizing Judaism as part of Christianity. In other words, Paul wasn't saying, they wanted him to say, he wasn't saying, you you Gentiles, those of you who are non-Jews, you Gentiles, you have to become Jews in order to be a Christian. They were upset that he wasn't saying that. And we'll get into that more in the weeks ahead, but here's here's what they were saying, essentially. Here's their their attack. Look, don't listen to Paul. He's a nobody. He's a self-appointed, self-inflated religious wannabe who didn't have some big revelation from Christ. That's not how he got the gospel. He learned about the gospel by going to church in Jerusalem where the real apostles are. See, Jerusalem was the sort of the home city of Christianity at the time. And then, they said, in order to make a name for himself, he comes out to you Gentiles and he flippantly removes the Judaism part of Christianity so that you will follow him. Don't listen to him. Listen to us. We've got the most advanced, accurate version of the gospel because we just came from Jerusalem. See, that's how they're attacking him. Now, again, let's let's move through this very personal defense Paul gives because I want you to see how radically the power of the gospel transformed him. And we know that it was the power of the gospel because he says it in verse 15. He says, but when God called me by his grace, the power of the gospel transformed him from a people pleaser into a fearless, courageous follower of Christ. Transformed him from a people pleaser into a fearless follower of Christ. Anybody here struggle with being a people pleaser? You don't have to raise your hands because you'd be doing that just to please me. So don't do that. Anybody here struggle with that? I want you to notice something. Did you notice that when Paul was describing his life pre-conversion, he said, he said, he said I was inv- advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. How do you know that you're advancing beyond someone else unless you're comparing yourself to them and competing with them. So that's that's, that's how that works. He's competing with them. What's he competing with them for? He says, says, I wanted the approval of the religious fathers. That's what he's saying when he says, says, I was zealous for the tradition of my fathers. I wanted wanted the approval of the the higher-up religious muckety-mucks in Jerusalem whose approval that he, he so craved. And think about what he's saying now. He's saying that his religion, all of the zeal for his religion, all of his obedience didn't have anything to do with God. It had everything to do with the approval of people. God called him out of religion to become a Christian. And you see, you know you're moving away from the gospel when your spiritual motivation becomes more about the approval of other people. Like it could be that you're, you're wanting the approval of people within your church or your Bible study or your small group. And you do all the right things, but you do them for the wrong reasons. Or your motivation might be, might be different. It might be the approval of people outside the church. And so you don't say anything about your belief about Jesus Christ. It's tough to be an outspoken Christ follower today 
and get the respect of people outside of Christianity. Most people don't really mind if you tell them you're religious. They don't really mind if you tell them that you're spiritual. They don't even mind if you tell them that you're a principled person. But oh my goodness, if you tell them that you're a Christian, they will gasp. (gasps) Why? Why? Think about it. The implication is you believe that people, including you, as well as the others, are so sinful that they couldn't save themselves by their own moral behavior. So sinful, in fact, that God had to become a man and be killed so that we could have a relationship with him. That's offensive. It strikes right at the heart of human pride. Fear of disapproval is a sign that you're moving away from the gospel. So fear of approval, or excuse me, the desire for approval from people, it's a sign that you're moving away from the gospel too. Last week you may recall that Paul asked this rhetorical question in in verse 10. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So in other words, he's, he's, telling us, he's telling us here, he's saying, he's saying these infiltrators, they're trying to convince you that I'm preaching the gospel so that I can curry favor with you guys, but I chose the wrong horse if that's what I'm after. Preaching the gospel doesn't win people's approval. It actually offends them. And yet that's exactly what Paul is risking here. It is costing him something to preach the gospel. He's being very persecuted. Think about it. He's being persecuted by the very people who would have once looked up to him. Now they're looking down on him and they're persecuting, persecuting him. And Paul says, you can't explain this change in me by anything but the power of the gospel. I would have never been willing to experience this persecution if God hadn't worked in my life. People pleaser? to fearless follower of Christ. Now second, I want you to notice that the power of the gospel also transformed him from a hateful religious racist into a loving follower of Christ. It transformed him from a hateful religious racist into a loving follower of Christ. You see, these infiltrators, they want to paint Paul as a guy who's flippant about Judaism. Like that's the reason that he neglects to tell you the importance of becoming Jewish when he preaches to you Gentiles. But Paul says this is ludicrous. He says in verse 13, I was extremely zealous of the traditions of my fathers. I was so hateful toward Christianity, he says, that I intensely persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. We know from other passages in the New Testament that in fact Paul was so obsessed, so hateful toward Christianity that he had followers of Christ killed. That he had others thrown in jail before he was converted. Why? Why did he hate Christianity so much? Because he understood that it completely undercut the religious system that he spent his whole life being devoted to. That's why he hated it so much. And besides that, the last people Paul would have ever been willing to spend time with were Gentiles like these people from Galatia. From a religious Jew's perspective, Gentiles, non-Jews, were dirty, filthy, subhumans. Paul would have wanted nothing to do with them pre-conversion. He's saying these infiltrate, their argument is ridiculous, he says. 
I'm going to tell you something that I've learned over the years. You know, one of the great privileges that I have uh, being a pastor is, is getting to do counseling with people, people unbelievably willing to, to allow me into the interior of their lives, and I count that as an enormous privilege. One thing that I've learned over all the years of, of doing counseling with people, it's impossible to change the things that people believe that support their core identity, even if those beliefs are destroying them from the inside out. Like you can't change the, it's impossible for, you can't do enough, you can't say enough, you can't reason enough, you can't, you can't convince, you can't persuade people to give up on the beliefs that are core to their identity. Even if, even if like in Paul's case, you know, Judaism was destroying him, he's a, a, a terribly hateful man, a racist. People won't give up on those beliefs without something supernatural changing them. Listen to how one commentator describes Paul. He says, he was a bigot and a fanatic, wholehearted in his devotion to Judaism and his persecution of Christ and the church. Now, a man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even have it changed for him by men. Paul's saying, this is absolutely ridiculous, this accusation. What did change Paul, though? How did he move from a hateful, racist, bigoted man to a loving follower of Christ? Well, again, he says it clearly in verses 15 and 16, and you can almost hear the, the echoes of shock in Paul, even as he writes it all these years later. He says, he says, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, notice it's, it's God's initiative, it's God's work, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is a Jewish guy who hates Gentiles. He said, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, sort of the, the home city for Christianity, to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. The gospel was so stunning to Paul, such a supernatural revelation that he, that he went into virtual isolation to try to process it. And in spite of all of his deep, dark sin, his hatred, his murderous rage, and his bigotry, Christ was inviting him in to a relationship with him, and nothing Paul had ever been taught prepared him for that. Nothing. I don't know if you guys ever read the book or saw the movie uh, Les Miserables. Anybody read that? Anybody see that? Anybody see that? A few of you? A lot of you didn't see it because you don't like musicals. I don't blame you. I understand. So I decided I'm going to sing a little bit of it to you this morning. Is that okay? No, I'm, I'm kidding you. I'm not going to do that. But the, the main character in Les Miserables is a man by the name of Jean Valjean. Valjean had, been, uh, Valjean had been wrongly imprisoned for 19 years, and he'd become so embittered by the injustice and the abuse that he had endured in prison that he, he became a real criminal, like on the inside. So once he, once he was finally paroled, he's taken in by, by a bishop out of the goodness of the bishop's heart. And one day when the bishop's back was turned, Valjean stole the silver cutlery in the bishop's dining room, and he runs. Well, the police catch him, and they bring him back to the bishop. And all the bishop has to do is say, thief, and Valjean is back in prison. But instead, the bishop looks at Valjean, and then he looks at the police and he says 
Of course I gave him the silver. But I also gave you the silver candlesticks. Why didn't you take those too? Here, here, take those and go in peace and know that you're always welcome here. Here's what the narrator says about Valjean's reaction. And it's absolutely profound. I'm going to put it up on the screen because it's so profound. You have to read this for yourself. He says, Valjean could not have said whether he was touched or humiliated in opposition to this celestial kindness, in other words, grace. He summoned up pride. He, he dimly felt that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault, the most formidable attack that he had ever sustained. Why? Why was it so? Why, was it, why did he see it as an attack? Why? Listen, listen, listen. Valjean felt that his hardness of heart would be complete if it resisted this kindness, but that if he yielded, he would have to renounce the hatred with which the acts of other men had for so many years filled his soul and in which he found satisfaction. That, this time, he must conquer or be conquered. Here's what he's saying. If you really understand grace, if you really understand that God has not just given you love, but a completely undeserved love, you will have to stop hating. It just, you can't keep hating. That's what grace does. That's the power of the gospel. And this is what happened to Paul. And I want you to hear me. I want you to listen to something here. You need to hear in the center of your being, the voice of God saying, in spite of everything you've done, I love you. In spite of everything you've done, I love you. You need to hear that. And this is why Paul was so concerned about what these infiltrators were teaching. Because if you say that God's acceptance is merited, you never have the opportunity to experience grace because there's nowhere else in life that operates on the basis of grace. No other religion. The rest of the world doesn't operate on the basis of grace. And if you never experience grace, you'll never be able to really love. Have you experienced grace? That's what makes the gospel, that's the power of the gospel, grace. And if you've experienced the gospel, you will increasingly be experiencing a transformation of the pride and selfishness and, and hatred of the human heart and into a heart of selfless love. It's the only power in the world that can do that. Well, let me end with this. From verses 17 on, Paul continues to defend himself against the accusation of the infiltrators, specifically that he, he's saying they said that he never really encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, that he only learned the gospel when he went to Jerusalem. That's how he learned it. And Paul traces his actions after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, and the upshot of all of this is that he's saying what we said a moment ago. He's saying, look, I, I spent three years trying to process this thing that was so radically changing me that I was never prepared for. And then I only spent 15 days in Jerusalem, and, and I only met a couple of the apostles. He's saying, that wouldn't have been time to account for 
this radical change of my lifelong core beliefs and my zeal for Judaism, that 15 days wouldn't have done it. And he says, in fact, I spent so little time there that the churches in Jerusalem, they didn't have any idea who I was. They only heard how this guy who was so hateful and so persecuting of Christians was now preaching the gospel. And he says, they praise God because of the radical change in me. But there's something obscure here in these last verses. It's in verse 21. Paul says that after spending three years processing the gospel and only 15 days in Jerusalem, he said, then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. What he doesn't mention is that the reason he left Jerusalem after those 15 days was that Jewish people who had once been his peers were now trying to kill him because of what he was preaching. We know this from Acts 9. Acts 9 says Paul stayed with, with them, and he's talking about uh, Christians in Jerusalem, and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. I don't know. Are you tracking his logic? He's saying these guys' accusation is ludicrous. If I only removed the Jewishness of Christianity when I later got to the Galatian Gentiles, why were the Jewish people in Jerusalem so angry about my gospel that they wanted to kill me? In other words, he's saying, I was preaching the same gospel way back then. And that's why they hated me so much. Because I was saying that you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. The persecutor had become the persecuted. What could so change a man that he would willingly, willingly endure the persecution that he once poured out on other people? Only the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Paul points to his own experience. He, he, he was talking about objectivity earlier in this chapter, but now he points to his own experience. And he says, he says, look at the change that the gospel has brought about in my life. Only something supernatural, only something as powerful as grace could have made this change in me. And you see, this is the thing that I want you to understand, that Christianity refuses to choose between the objective and the subjective. Because it is more than mere intellectual agreement with doctrine, and it's more than just a religious experience. It's a relationship with a crucified Christ who out of sheer grace died on a cross for us so that he could invite us in to an undeserved relationship with him. And the inevitable result of that relationship is explosive personal transformation. Have you experienced power of the gospel. Because you see, it is possible to merely agree intellectually with Christianity without ever experiencing the gospel. It's possible to be around enough people, like people on a Sunday morning, enough people who are Christians, um, where there's plenty of Christianity in the air, it's possible to be overshadowed by Christianity without being penetrated by it. So my question to you remains, what's changed? I mean, look, let's understand, Paul's a more severe example of transformation than most people because he was in such a dark, murderous place before. But what has changed in you? Like, what has changed in you? When you discover things in your life that aren't in conformity with Christ, do you experience any repentance? Well, that's change. That's the power of the gospel. 
Do you find yourself even just a little bit wanting to know Christ more intimately? That's the power of the gospel. Are you becoming less critical of people? Less judgmental, more loving? That's the power of the gospel. What's changed? I'm not suggesting that you become perfect. I'm not saying that. Certainly I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But are you seeing increasing transformation? Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel isn't just objective, nor is it subjective. It's, it's a truth, an objective truth, that brings powerful transformation into your personal experience. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the brilliance, the wisdom, the beauty of the gospel. It's so fascinating when people accuse Christianity of being black and white, when in reality Christianity stands out as, as a nuanced, brilliant gospel compared to the polarization of the culture that we live in where everything is black and white. Where you are either for me or you're against me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. For those that are here today who have experienced the power of the gospel, I pray, Lord, that that would continue in their lives, that they would continue to see and to pursue intentionally transformation. Lord, for those that are here today who may never have experienced the power of the gospel, maybe they just merely, maybe they just intellectually agreed with the idea that there is a Christ, that he died on the cross and that he was raised again from the dead. Maybe they just intellectually agree with it, but they've never experienced powerful transformation. I pray today would be the day that they would understand the power of the gospel in a new way. That whatever they've been counting on to find acceptance before you, that they would throw that away and that they would place their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And as a result, they would experience powerful transformation. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this for every person here and for those who've never, never heard the gospel before. I pray that today would be a day that you, in a way that I cannot, would supernaturally penetrate their hearts and go to the beliefs that are at the core of their identity and change them and bring them into a relationship with you. And I pray these things now, Lord Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen.